Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise. That among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right, now for the fifth Sunday, we've been asking, what does this mean? This week I want to talk about how the cross is the axis of love that refounds the world. Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem for Passover week. Jerusalem, a city of 70,000 people, at Passover week swells to nearly a million. And so there are great crowds of people everywhere and from all over. And among these worshipers, among these crowds in Jerusalem for Passover week are some Greeks, not Jews, Greeks, They would be what we call God-fearers. These are ones who have come to believe that the God of Israel is the one and true God, but they haven't converted to Judaism. So they are Gentile worshipers of Israel's God. They worship from afar, as it were. These Greeks find one of Jesus' disciples, Philip, Philip is the only disciple who has a Greek name, and maybe we can do some detective work. It could be that he's from Bethsaida in Galilee, and we think that possibly Philip's father was Greek and his mother was Jewish, thus he was fluent in Greek. Anyway, for whatever reason, these Greek worshipers find Philip and say, Sir, we would like to see Jesus. And so... Philip and Andrew come to Jesus and they say, hey, there's some Greeks, you know, those God-fearers that are here and and they would like to meet with you. And Jesus says, yeah, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Jesus understands that what he's doing will not stay confined within the Jewish world, but it's going to reach beyond those borders into the Gentile world, which is to say the whole world. And Jesus says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, but how is Christ glorified? He's glorified when he's crucified. When he says glorified, he actually means crucified. But it's also glorified. The time's come. 
It's right here at hand. Now is the time come for the Son of Man to be glorified, crucified. Truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it'll bring forth much fruit. And then Jesus says, now is my soul troubled. Look, if you knew that within three or four days you were to be crucified, wouldn't your soul be troubled? Now is my soul troubled. Remember, Jesus is not an actor in a passion play. He's living this out in real time as a real human being. I'm about to be glorified. I'm about to be crucified. I'm about to fall into the earth and die. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It's for this purpose that I've come into the world. Oh, Father, glorify your name. And the response from heaven was like thunder. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And then Jesus said this, John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out. And I... When I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he would die. Now, for those of us who are asking, what does this mean? These words of Jesus are enormously significant. Three times in Galilee, Jesus has privately foretold his crucifixion. Three times to his disciples, he said, look, we're going up to Jerusalem, but I'm going to be rejected. Condemned by the chief priests, they will turn me over to the Gentiles. I will be flogged, mocked, and crucified. And on the third day, I will rise again. He'd said this three times. They didn't understand it, probably didn't believe it. But he'd said it three times in private. But now Jesus alludes for the first time publicly to his impending crucifixion and gives it an interpretive meaning. This is essentially the only place in the Gospels where Jesus talks about what his death upon the cross actually means. Jesus says that when he is lifted up in crucifixion, it will accomplish three things. Three things that will in fact so alter the world that it will be in effect a refounding of the world. Jesus says, first of all, now is the judgment of the world. So Jesus says that the crucifixion will judge the world. Now is the judgment of the world. Secondly, he says, the crucifixion will cast out the ruler of the world. Now is the ruler of this world driven out. Now we'll talk about those things next week. 
I'm going to preach on how the cross overthrows the Satan. We'll talk about those two next Sunday. Today I want to talk about this third interpretive meaning that Jesus gives us concerning his own crucifixion. The crucifixion will draw the whole world to Christ. So in the crucifixion, the world is judged, the ruler of the world is driven out, and the world is drawn to Christ. David Bentley Hart translation of John 12, 32, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will drag everyone to me. Drag, that's the real word, helko in the Greek. It's the same word that's used that when Peter dragged that net full of fish up onto the sea. Remember that? Same word. Jesus and I, when I am lifted up, speaking of being lifted up in crucifixion, I will drag all people to myself. But to understand how the cross of Christ refounds the world, we have to go back to the story of the wrong founding of the world, to the founding of the world by Cain. We have to go back to the primeval story of Cain and Abel. So the story goes like this. There was a man named mankind, Adam, Adam. There was a woman named life, Heva, Eve. And Adam and Heva, mankind and life, had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain is a farmer. Abel is a shepherd. Cain belongs to that class that is harnessing agriculture and becoming settled, giving rise to civilization. Abel belongs to that nomadic class that doesn't see land as that which is owned, but they just move from pasture to pasture following the flocks. A conflict arose. That's what the anthropologists say as well. That when agriculture began to rise, there was conflict between these now settling farmers and these still nomadic shepherds. Of course, the dispute was over land. Could land be owned? Who owns the land? And it leads to conflict. And so we're told that in a field, yes, because the dispute is over land, in a field that becomes the world's first battlefield, Cain rose up and slew his brother Abel. He lied to himself about it and then he lied to God. He told himself, he's not really my brother, he's other, he's enemy. It had to be done. He tells God, I'm my brother's keeper, I don't know where he is. And Cain is banished and he moves east of Eden where he founds the first city. Are you hearing the story? He founds the first city. In Cain, the world is organized around an axis of power and force by violence. That's what the story wants you to get. 
that the first city and all subsequent systems of civilization are founded according to the same pattern through violent power. And violent power becomes the organizing principle of human civilization. It is so dominant, this idea that that's how you organize civilization. Now, we kind of hide it. We don't want to be too, we don't want to be too transparent about it because that's vulgar. We hide it, but it's there. And it is so dominant, the idea that the way, the, the way humans organize themselves around an axis of power enforced by violence is so dominant that most people cannot imagine there's an alternative that it could be any other way. It's just the way it is, is what they're going to say. And so it goes. It's just the way it is. That's how life is. And so Cain founds the first city, and then you see the rise of the great empires that established their society through violence. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Rome. To get us up to this point in the story we're looking at today, this story of Cain and Abel, this primeval story of Cain and Abel, it's, it's the story that we tell to subtly remind ourselves of what lurks in the dark and where we really come from and what our systems of civilization are really built upon. It's the story of Cain and Abel. It's also the, storm, the story of Romulus and Remus. You may not know that story. I'm not going to tell it, but it's the foundational myth of the Roman Empire that these two twin brothers... Romulus and Remus had a conflict. Romulus killed Remus. And he founds a city after his own name, Roma. It's the story, maybe you'll know this one. It's the story of Smeagol and Deagle. Remember Smeagol? He becomes Gollum. But he starts out as Smeagol and he kills his brother Deagle on his birthday. Why? He wanted something that Deagle had. What did, he, what did Deagle have that he wanted? The ring. But what kind of ring is it? The ring of power they're all telling the same story these archetypal stories remind us of the dark truths that we would rather keep hidden but Jesus comes into the world to shine the light tell the truth and refound the world when Adam transgressed Adam humankind when Adam transgressed in the garden, God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Humankind with lost innocence was banished from the garden and set on a trajectory that would lead to destruction. And God laments. He looks upon what humankind is becoming. And God says, behold the man. Look at them. Look what's happened. Behold the man. Now I want to go to the moment when behold the man reappears in Scripture. First seen in Genesis, but much later seen in John. So we have to go to the trial of Jesus Christ and the judgment seat of Pontius Pilate. After Jesus was arrested in the garden and then condemned by the Sanhedrin, he was brought early in the morning 
before the Roman governor, one Pontius Pilate. They bring him to Pontius Pilate because they don't have the authority to sentence someone to death. That belongs only to the, to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. He is in the imperial government. He's ambitious and he's frustrated. He's disappointed with his station in life. He has loftier ambitions than to be the governor of this far-flung backwater rustic province called Judea where he has to deal with a continuously quarrelsome people. He doesn't like being there. He doesn't like being get being drug out of bed early in the morning for one of their theological disputes. I see him, he's cynical, hard bitten. I see him, he's smoking a cigarette. And they're all talking at the same time, all these chief priests bringing all these accusations against Jesus. And they're, they're of theological nature. And Pilate doesn't care about that. He doesn't care. He only has one question. He just says, are you the king of the Jews? Because that's the only thing he cares about. He's not interested in, in uh, theological subtleties. Are you the king of the Jews? Because if you are, there's going to be a problem. Because we already got a king of the Jews. Caiaphas crossed town. I don't like him. But Caesar apparently thinks he should be king of the Jews. So that's our king. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. It's for this world. But my kingdom is not from this world. It's not from any world that you would understand, governor. You understand a world that began with Cain and the Pharaohs and Babylon and Persia and Greece, and now you've got your day in the sun of Rome. My kingdom doesn't come from that. My kingdom is not from this world because if my kingdom were from this world, my servants would be fighting. But that isn't how this king comes. Pilate just says... So you're a king then. Jesus said, well, you say so. For this purpose, I have come into the world that I might testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. What is truth? Flog him. Jesus is taken out of the headquarters of Pontius Pilate into the Antonia Fortress where the entire garrison is roused. So ah, we got a flogging. Yeah, what'd he do? Ah, I don't know. Said he claimed to be the king of the Jews. So they strip him, tie him to a post and give him a brutal flogging. It's some entertainment 
for the Roman soldier, something to do on a Friday morning. Then one of them got the idea. They said, well, you know, he's a king, right? Well, come on. He doesn't look like a king. And he goes over and he takes one of the purple robes that maybe one of the commanders has and puts it on. And says, yeah, now he's starting to look like a king. Somebody says, well, you know, he needs a scepter. And they find a, a reed, a bamboo kind of reed, and they give it to him. Ah, now he's got a scepter. A real enterprising and cruel soldier says, what's well, a king without a crown? And he's really having fun with this. And he weaves together a crown of thorns and places it upon his head. Now look at him. He's a real king. He's got a crown of thorns. And they begin to bow before him. They begin to bow down. Hail to the king. Hail to the king. And then they take that bamboo reed and beat his head with it. This macabre coronation is in fact the true coronation of the world's true king. You may think it's mockery and it was from their side, but this is when Christ becomes king of kings. A purple robe, a reed scepter, a crown of thorns, and Roman soldiers bowing down saying, Hail to the king. And they bring him back to Pilate's headquarters. Pilate then takes Jesus and brings him out there to the balcony. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Eche homo. Behold the man. Oh, we heard that so long ago in Genesis. But Christ comes to recapitulate humanity. He comes to give humanity a new form, a new identity. And Genesis, behold the man, becomes now in John's gospel, Pilate's Eche homo. Behold the man. And the crowd says, crucify him. He's blasphemed. He claims that he's the son of God. That gets Pilate's attention. He comes from a world of a pantheon of many gods and goddesses. Who knows? And in fact, it disturbs him a little bit. And he takes him back into his headquarters and says, uh, Where are you from? And Jesus gives no reply. So Pilate says this. Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? See the scene. Come back in here. He's alone with Jesus, smoking a cigarette again. Where are you from? Silence. 
Come on, man. Don't you know? Don't you know how this goes? Don't you know? I have power to release you. And I have power to crucify you. I got the power, man. So you better speak up. This is the moment when Pilate answers his own question. He'd asked the question, what is truth? When truth was standing right in front of him. But it was a cynical question. And his next statement is flogging. But after Jesus has been flogged, Pilate answers his own question. He says, here's the truth. The world is run by people like me, like Caesar and all those that shape the world by their capacity to kill. That's the truth. Now, if you will acknowledge that's the truth, who knows? I might just say, okay, you've learned your lesson. You're free to go. But if you won't acknowledge that this is the way the world is, I'm going to say something else. I'm going to say, let him be crucified. Pilate is deeply cynical, but he actually believes what he's saying. He's saying this is the truth. The world is run by the people that have the power, the power to kill. But Pilate's truth, Jesus knows this, Pilate's truth, Pilate's so-called truth, Pilate's truth is in fact Cain's ancient lie that the whole fallen world has been founded upon. It's the lie that the world has to be founded upon an axis of power enforced by violence and there's no other way. Jesus has come to expose that lie, tell the truth, shine the light, and then refound the world. That's what Jesus, as the world's true king, accomplishes at the cross. The organizing principle of the world is no longer violent power, but co-suffering, saving, forgiving love. At the cross, Jesus Christ refounds the world around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. And the crucified and risen Christ is now in the process of drawing all people to himself. The gravity of grace is drawing the world into a new and saving orbit. We can resist the gravity of grace. Yes, we can. We can resist the gravity of grace, but it only just keeps us in the darkness of self-damnation. Salvation is what happens when we stop fighting the gravity of grace and allow ourselves to be drawn into an orbit of love revolving around Jesus Christ. So we come and we see the one who's called King of the Jews with a thorny crown 
And we look at him saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And as we succumb to the gravity of grace, we find ourselves saying with the centurion, truly this man is the son of God. And we begin to find our lives drawn into a new organization, a new orbit. Instead of it always revolving around power, where everything is cutthroat, you can try to keep it, you can try to keep it hidden, but you all know that ultimately it's about the power to dominate others. And we've been told the lie that that's the only way humans can exist. It's the only way they can organize themselves. That's the kingdom of this world. Jesus says, my kingdom's not from that. My kingdom comes from heaven. And it's different. That's why my servants aren't fighting. Because they understand that it's all a gift. And that they don't have to fight for what God wants to give. And as we see the beauty of Christ in forgiveness upon the cross, we're just drawn into a new way of being. It takes us a while. We have to learn how this operates. But we're drawn into this orbit around Jesus Christ lifted up on the cross as the axis of love expressed in forgiveness, not in violence. Instead of the axis of power enforced by violence, we're drawn to the axis of love expressed in forgiveness. And so let's... Let's look upon Christ crucified. And let's say, truly this is the Son of God. And let's say, Jesus, we, we yield to your gravity of grace. And we're drawn to you. Save us. Forgive us. Heal us. Help us to be those that live in your kingdom. A kingdom that's not based upon power and violence. A kingdom that's based upon love and forgiveness. Lord Jesus, we believe in you. We believe you are the son of God. We believe at the cross you refounded the world. And in resurrection, this is all validated and vindicated and we believe. Amen. And amen. The axis of love expressed in forgiveness. What does this mean? It's the axis of love that refounds the world. And so that we are a people that are being formed in the ways of love and mercy and grace and forgiveness as we continue our orbit around Christ crucified. Stand with me. Let's confess our sins because sometimes we get out of that orbit. Sometimes we stray from that orbit. I know. I do. We do. But there's forgiveness and there's mercy. So we'll first uh, confess our Christian faith, what we believe, and then we'll ask for mercy from God and receive that too. Pray with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. 
He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's confess our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for forgiveness. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of this church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.